0: Good morning. morning. Um, I'm going to be up here in a little bit, but I'm up here now to introduce our storyteller for the week, uh, Christy Dewey. Where's Christy? Uh, Lots to say about her. I've been working with her on the leadership team, and she adds so much. But the one trait, my favorite trait about her, just happens to be a similarity between her and I. We both love to be in motion rather than standing still. So Christy is my little electron friend. Christy, come on up and tell us a story.
1: All right. Good morning. My name is Christy Dewey, and I grew up in a somewhat unconventional family in Texas. For many years, my family had a Christian singing group, and we were called the followers. (laughs) And um, think of us as a Christian partridge family. We had a bus named Big Blue, and then a bus named Big Red. And uh, we were homeschooled and traveled almost 300 days a year. It was very glamorous. When I was entering seventh grade, due to a lack of bookings, passion, and quite frankly, money, my parents decided to get off the road and back into the real world. As you can imagine, my social skills were a bit out of alignment. I was very comfortable around adults and my sisters and cousins, but knew little about making friends and maintaining relationships. I went to a small Christian school, started making friends, and living a dream life in the bubble. I was popular in all aspects of school. I was at the top of my class academically. I was captain of the cheerleading squad and a starter on both the the varsity basketball and volleyball teams that may sound impressive but keep in mind there were probably a hundred kids in my middle school and high school combined <laughs> i'm really not that athletic or smart you can just ask my kids <laughs> i also became very active in the youth group in our large southern baptist church i looked forward to going to church on sunday morning sunday night youth choir wednesday supper and bible study Our youth pastor at the time and his wife really took an interest in me. I would babysit for them and just hang out. Again, remember how well I got along with adults. They stressed the importance of being a godly woman. To me, that meant following all the rules, which were a lot. That meant no sex drugs or rock and roll, no cussing, gossiping, dancing, lusting, gambling, and pretty much no fun. And been having a quiet time, listening to praise music, wearing modest clothing, and only dating a Christian. All these things are good, but they're super boring. I'm not saying the rules are bad. <laughs> I'm just saying I had a life out of balance. But I followed the rules. I was godly. And if I was an expert at pointing, I'm sorry, and I was an expert at pointing out the sins of others. My world was black and white and if you were in the gray, you were on the naughty list. My youth pastor was convinced that I was called to be a pastor's wife. Look at me now. Um, His words meant so much to me that I took it as truth. I didn't even need to ask God about it. So I became determined to become a pastor's wife. We were fortunate enough to live in a city that had a large Southern Baptist seminary. Praise God. Each Sunday, I would wait in anticipation for my future husband to walk through the door. (laughs) I waited and waited. I spent years of my life waiting and lonely. Resistant to branch out of my calling, I rarely dated. There really weren't that many good candidates for someone as perfect as me. (laughs) I eventually thought I had found the one. He was going to be a pastor. He had all of his limbs. And he was from the Bible Belt. Check, check, and double check. I immediately took on the role of submitter. His criticisms of me seemed justified. I shouldn't be wearing skirts above my knees, I shouldn't be driving a sports car, I shouldn't be listening to pop music, I shouldn't be enjoying my job in the corporate world. I began to feel much less godly. I eventually became so ungodly that I broke up with them. I told my ex-youth pastor that I didn't feel called to the ministry. I even started dating someone from California. (laughs) I mean, were there even Christians on the West Coast? (laughs) Didn't they know California was going to crack off into the ocean because of all the sin? Seattle wasn't even my radar, but I'm sure it would someday be covered by molten lava from Mount Rainier due to the grunge scene. Well, marrying that guy from California meant moving there. I was exposed to lots of new experiences, beliefs, and people. I met a lot of people who weren't born into Christianity, but found the Lord later in life. I was inspired by how much in love they were with God. It was fresh. I grew into a better understanding of the fact that everyone is a sinner, even me, that the do's in life are just as important as the don'ts. I became more balanced, and I made a lot of apologies to friends from the past that were a different type of sinner than me. That guy, Brad, isn't here today, but he knows this story and helped me recover from being perfect. We've been married for over 20 years. California still hasn't cracked off into the ocean. Seattle still hasn't been covered with lava for Mountaineer, praise Jesus, but scientifically it will happen someday. (laughs) (laughs) I am godly today, not because I'm sinless or less sinful, but because of his amazing grace. All right, thank you. (laughs) This morning our scripture reading is from the book of 1 Timothy. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 16 in the English Standard Version. they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them, be, let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husbands of one wife, managing their children in their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one sought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The word of the Lord.
0: Again, my name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here, and we are continuing in our series in the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, The series is called Generation to Generation from fear to faithfulness, and uh, we're gonna start today with a video. What's your goal in life? Notice not one person said they wanna be godly. That's what we're talking about today, this idea of godliness. And my hope is by the end of it, godliness would make the list for some of you. I think it's a really good word that I've misunderstood for a large part of my life. And I want to, I think, help us to relate to this idea a little bit differently than before the sermon. Uh, Paul's final words, uh, in, recorded in the books of First and Second Timothy here, uh, one of the goals of these words is to pass on the leadership baton from one generation to the next. And here is Paul <laughs> making sure, getting... Um, to a lower level a little bit, and spelling out for Timothy what Paul thinks leaders in the church should look like, you know, to be sort of an ideal or an example of what somebody who is a follower of Christ looks like. Now, uh, what do you think about when you hear the word godly? Who is godly to you? Can you think of a person who is godly, that you would comfortably label godly? If reaction is information, pay attention to your own reaction in this. Uh, are you godly? Do people who know you, would they accuse you of being godly? Paul twice in this passage says that this idea of being godly is mysterious. You know, and part of what that means is that the sum of the parts don't equal the whole you know, Paul lists these traits about overseers and deacons, and you add up all those traits, and what you end up with is not necessarily what Paul would identify as godly, because part of being godly is mysterious. It's a little bit hard to put our finger on. It's hard to deconstruct in this manner. A few things that Paul, uh, I think, teaches us, I'm not going to address all of it, but uh, there's, there's three big categories of things that Paul attributes to somebody who is godly. The first one that we learn is found in verse 1. And we learn that desiring something is okay. Now, this word desire and uh, Christian faith hasn't always uh, worked out well together in my understanding of Christianity. And, uh, you know, one idea that I've always thought about for leadership is the idea of reluctance, that we should be reluctant to be leaders. And yet here, Paul says, uh, you know, actually desiring to be a leader is a good thing. Because if you desire to be a leader, you're desiring a good thing. So desiring that good thing is also a good thing. So there's kind of a theology of desire that's baked into verse one year, and we're not going to go into it, but I just want to throw it out there for you to think about a little bit. That your desire that's underneath your desire, underneath that desire, when you trace desire all the way back to its most basic form, you come to understand that God is the God of desires, that God's desire is for uh, us to have the desires of our hearts answered. This is what the Bible promises, that he will give you the desires of your heart, not the shallow stuff. You know, Not the stuff you think you desire, but underneath all your desires. What's really at the base of it? And God wants to work with you on those desires. That God uses our desires to pull us forward and upward and out of uh, bad things into better things. So desires are a powerful force uh, that God created and uses to guide us in our lives. So that's the first thing we see in verse 1. And then we see... Part 2 in this passage is verses 2 to 13. And I'm going to sum up the whole list of things for overseers and for deacons and say it this way. Self-leadership and fruit in, in somebody's life serve as key predictors of future performance. If you want to know how somebody is going to do in the unknown future, Look at their known past. That's the best way to tell who somebody is and how somebody will do. Now, um, I thought this was kind of a fun little list. The New York Times, April 2017, published an article, and the title itself is all you need to read on this article. The title is The Utter Uselessness of Job Interviews. <laughs> Guess what the article is about? And they go into the science of this, and they show lots of studies to uh, back up this title. And basically what they say is, if you had the responsibility of hiring somebody, the very best shot you give yourself at hiring the right person who will behave as predicted as possible as predictably as possible, is if you never met the person, if you didn't know specifics like their name or age or gender or their personality traits, none of that, if all you knew was how they performed in their last job and you made your decision based on just those facts, then you stand like a two to three times better chance of hiring the right person. But what happens if you actually sit down and interview a person is you get all distorted based on your personal interaction and reactions to the person's personality. And then you start to view their track record, their history, through the lens of their personality. And then you end up making a less than best choice. And so utter uselessness of job interviews. I experienced a version of this. When I was a director of church planting, a big part of my job was uh, trying to assess a candidate's potential for future leadership in this very specific area we call church planting. And so we do a barrage of psychological tests, and we sort of lock them up for a four-day conference where we get to know them, we deprive them of sleep, feed them lots of junk food, and sort of see what comes out the other end. You know, and uh, we got it wrong all the time. And my struggle was, I always wanted to believe in people. You know, see the potential in somebody. But here's a lesson I learned during those years. The Bible, it never teaches us to look at the potential of a human being, but to look at the faithfulness of a person. So the Bible talks about this, you know, if they've been faithful with little, then you give them some more. Is what Jesus taught over and over again. A lot of his parables were this way. The way you know how somebody will be is by looking at how they have been. So it's not potential, but faithfulness is what we're supposed to look at. Because in reality, we're all made in God's image, we all have infinite potential. You really can be anything you want to be in theory. But really, if you want to know who you will be in the next five years, look at who you have been in the last five years. It's the potential versus faithfulness. But Paul talks about this here. He says, look at how they're managing their cell, themselves, their household, whatever they're in charge of. Now, Paul isn't necessarily, I'm not going to go into this. Julie did some of this work last week. Paul isn't saying this is what men should be in charge of as much as he's saying you're already in charge of it. This is what the cultural uh, expectations are of men. And so if you are a man, you should do well in these areas that you're already given charge over so that what you will be given charge over, you will do well in. And so there isn't as much theology on men's and women's roles baked into this passage as some claim there is. Okay, so this is highly contextual. And here Paul is just making the main point that if you're faithful with little, you can be trusted to be faithful with more. So that's the second body of teaching that Paul has for us. But the one that I want to spend most of our time on is in verses 14 to 16. And here is where Paul brings up the idea of mystery and how godliness is mysterious. And he's basically saying the sum of the parts don't equal the whole. That if you see somebody and they exhibit all of these traits, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are godly. Godliness is sort of a different thing. And if you are godly, you will exhibit these traits. But if you exhibit these traits, it doesn't mean that you are necessarily godly. Now, I say this in part because of my own personal experience growing up in the church. I saw a culture of legalism in the church that I grew up in. And it was very much about who you fronted yourself to be. And you had to present the image of Managing or controlling or leading yourself and your family well. And so, no matter what was actually happening in the home, you couldn't present that uh, in the church. And because it was an immigrant church and because it was the place of social status as well, because immigrants didn't have social status in larger, broader society, church became really important. So, there's sort of a heightened sense of uh, performance and image management that was happening. You know, it's almost like everybody was their own public, uh, you know, publicist as well. And so I began to grow weary and suspicious of how people presented themselves. They can look like, sound like, talk like they're presenting their, their, themselves in a godly way. But I still felt some uh, part of me. Uh, intuited that that just wasn't quite it. Something was missing. There had to be more to godliness than kind of a well-presented, suppressed version of your life story. That's what I felt. And... uh, It's kind of a funny thing. Another way that I relate to this is, you know, I've been in ministry, this is my 21st year, and I think for most of those years, I've gotten some version of this feedback, and the people who give me this feedback mean it as a compliment. And I take it as a compliment, but it's totally an insult. This is the comment that, they make. And actually, if I may say, I forgot to ask Katie for permission, but she, to- she gave me this compliment slash insult about three weeks ago or four weeks ago. And uh, I totally took it as a compliment. She said, you know, Peter, I'm, I've, I've stepped up into this new role. And I, at first, there was an intimidation factor and leading worship. If you don't know Katie, she was the, um, uh, the our worship leader today. And uh, you know, there was a kind of intimidation she experienced about it. You know, am I qualified? Am I equipped? Am I ready to be in front of people in a public row? And then here's a comment and a compliment slash insult. She said, but you give me so much hope. <laughs> <laughs> and she thinks to herself, well, if Peter can be a leader, who can't? Now, I've received this feedback my whole ministry career because nobody has ever pegged me as a pastor. Nobody ever said, there goes a pastor. He looks like a pastor, walks like a pastor, talks like a pastor, must be a pastor. Not once. Never has that ever happened. I'm a bit outside the box, you know, and often I doubt the... What's the word? The the fit, the... Should I really maintain this tension? Is this worth it? (laughs) But that's part of my own story. And, uh, you know, that's interesting. I totally agree uh, with all of you who have ever thought that or commented that to me. And will continue to into the years that I'm in ministry. Uh, But outwardly, I agree with you that I don't quite fit the bill. You know, I don't walk or talk or dress or look or act like a pastor. My interests aren't what pastors uh, should be interested in. I give you that. But internally, I feel more qualified than ever before. There's a kind of uh, Christ-centeredness in my thinking. You know, I sense increasing humility and a sense of my own personal ambition, sort of taking a back seat. I feel more... Uh, asking of a person rather than, you know, somebody with answers. I really do feel like I'm better with God's authority in my life. I really feel that my identity is more wrapped up in God's love for me, and that being really all-sufficient as opposed to who I am or, how, you know, how well I perform. You know, and, and the fruit I count are different than the fruit I thought I would be counting. It's it's been a fascinating inner journey, but outwardly, yes, I really shouldn't be a pastor. But take my word for it. Inside, I kind of feel more like a pastor. But you know, you can you're entitled, and you're correct in your opinions. Uh, at the end, at the end of this passage, uh, Paul. Rather than giving himself or Timothy or another leader in the church as an example, he says godliness is mysterious, and the lone example he gives is the example of Jesus Christ and Jesus' life narrative. You know, here's what Jesus' life looked like. And this really is the only example of godliness I want to give you. And because there's a kind of mystery and paradox in his life story. You know, nobody who looked at his life or how he walked would label him as godly. In fact, they were so confused because he didn't walk, talk, or sound like the religious leaders of his time. He was completely out of the box. And yet, they concluded, he speaketh as one with authority. How does he do that? But he doesn't sound like the other rabbis or the Pharisees or the Sadducees. How can he be of God? How can he be the sent one? How can he claim to represent God when all the other people who claim to represent God don't look like that? And so it's, it's very confusing. It's confounding. And there's a kind of mystery that's uh, baked into how God actually looks like. You know, and our human interpretation of how God will look like is very different than what God actually looks like. And there's a, there's a gap there I want us to explore a little bit today. But ultimately what we see is that it's Jesus' life that's fruitful. It's he who was faithful. And so there's this idea of the mystery and the paradox having to be vindicated in the world, And once it's vindicated, it's believed on and it's proclaimed. So the, the two vague ideas I want us to think about a little bit today is mysterious and paradoxical and ultimately fruitful. Uh, focus on uh, 16a, verse 16a here. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Okay, so just... As you think about this word, golly, the first thing I want you to do is just get comfortable with the idea that golliness is mysterious. If you've looked at somebody and they're plainly golly, you're missing something. There has to be something you can't quite put your finger on. It doesn't deconstruct well. You can't label it. You can't make a list or categorize it. It just doesn't work because there's mystery involved. And he was manifested in the flesh. So there's a kind of godliness that's wrapped in the flesh. So it's hidden. It's it's mostly hidden because it's under wraps. And there's a, a, there's a, a limitation to how godliness looks like in the flesh because godliness is not about the outside wrap. The wrapping, but it's about what's at the center of it, right? That's God. And then because of that, it has to be vindicated by the spirit. Uh, the Hedgehog Review, one of the writers there, Elizabeth Quinn, uh, she has this fascinating take on how we experience godliness in our culture today. Uh, and she says something like this. I'm not going to quote her uh, word for word, but it's, I'm using her words here. She says, Modernity's idea of the self... Okay, so she's saying our culture, our present-day culture's concept of the self is, in her words, self-edited, is a self-edited narrative. Okay, you got that? A self-edited narrative that follows a vague and unarticulated set of rules with the hope of curating a highlight reel what she calls a kind of self-created identity. Now, that's a mouthful. I'm going to say it again. Modernity's idea of the self is a self-edited narrative following a vague and unarticulated set of rules with the hope of curating a highlight reel, a kind of self-created identity. So this is what we do. And what she's saying is this. The, the culture, the secular world out there, people outside the church, we don't, they don't know the word godly. They don't think about the term godly. They're not wondering about that. They're not struggling with that. And yet, they still aim for some kind, some version of godliness. There is a way that they want to present themselves as good or better or worthy They want to appear a certain way, and so they're busy, obsessed with self-editing a kind of narrative about themselves they're putting forward. We're all obsessed with our image, and if you're in the church, you may use Christian theology and Christian categories to talk about or put forth your godliness, but if you're not in the church, you're doing the same thing. You're just not using the word godly. And she says it's a kind of self-created identity. And then she adds, most people who do this have no idea who they want to create. They have no idea. They're sort of like, they have a vague sense of what the culture values, and then they imitate that culture. They translate that, and then they take a picture And then they put it up and hoping that that picture that they put up of the lunch that they had, of the vacation that just came back, somehow adds value to their self-edited highlight reel. And they present that highlight reel as a sum total of who they are. That we all do this in the church, outside the church. You know, an example she gives is the book Eat, Pray, Love. It's a story of a woman who was lost, who was recovering from divorce and life's traumas, and she goes on a round-the-globe journey, and through eating, praying, and finding love, she finds happiness. And then um, Elizabeth Quinn says this, happiness in this book is the consequence of personal effort. You fight for it, strive for it, insist upon it, and sometimes even travel around the world looking for it. You have to participate relentlessly in the manifestations of your own blessings. And once you have achieved a state of happiness, you must never ever become lax about maintaining it. You must make a mighty effort to keep swimming upward into that happiness forever so that you can achieve a kind of subjective sovereignty. She's kind of a dense writer. (laughs) But you hear what she's saying. That whether you are a Christian or not, You have this personal effort you're making, this fight for your life to be somebody, to be legitimate, to be good, to be valued, to be looked up to, to be acceptable. Happiness is actually just a means to other people believing you're happy. You know, and if you don't do it God's way, you're doing it your own way. And so if God's not sovereign over your life and you're not trusting God, then you have to be your own sovereignty and you have to curate your life and all of the bits and pieces that make up your life are in your own hands. And you have to control those pieces to stitch together this self-edited narrative, this highlight reel for yourself. And so one of the things that I am appreciating in this passage is that whether you're a Christian or not, Whether you use the word or not, you all, all of us, we want to be godly. We want to be something bigger and better and more than ourselves because deep inside we know we're small and insignificant and illegitimate by ourselves. We want somebody to pass a verdict finally over us that says, you're okay, you are enough. You are loved. You have hope. You have worth. And it's kind of interesting because if I bless myself and I spend my whole life trying to bless myself, so to speak, and I finally get it, then the next conclusion, the next experience I have is one of disappointment because I bless myself and then only then do I realize, oh, that wasn't it. That wasn't it. One Hollywood actor says, I really hope everyone finds wealth and fame. It was Matthew McConaughey who said this. I really hope everyone finds wealth and fame so that they can know how utterly disappointing it is. I think all of us were looking for God to bless us, for God to put his creator hand on us, and say, you are my child. My love to you has nothing to do with your loveliness. I love you because I'm loving, and I'm proud of you because I made you. In fact, you've done everything contrary, but I will wash you, I will cleanse you, I will redeem your life, I am for you and not against you, I will not judge you, I will save you. I think that's what we're Longing for the alternative to true godliness is a life sentence of combat with all the other crazies out there. Do you want to get in on that frenzy? Is that your life work? that you want to participate in? You know, and we see, I really like this phrase, "manifested in the flesh." More and more, as I get older. Uh, year after year, I realized the limitations of my flesh. This marathon season, I had brand new injuries that I've never had before. You know, I have this weird thing on the left back part of my left knee. I've never had that before. It's like, what is that? Why is that happening? I don't know. But there's going to be a new thing every time I do something. You know, and uh, I, I think most of you know this. Some of you may not know. Here's some news like, uh, Julie Wellman passed this week. She went on her own. Uh, she passed at 4 a.m. Friday morning. She passed peacefully in her sleep. Uh, Dave is feeling really well-loved and supported by his family. He's doing well. Um, if you're on the prayer chain, you got that notice, and you'll hear more information about her memorial service. But I was asking the question, you know, is she more free? Is she, has she diminished as a person? No, I really believe she's not wrapped up, limited by her flesh anymore. You know, she knows everything now. She sees all. She's face to face with her maker and the lover of her soul. And as I was thinking about my own injuries, I thought, you know, my body is not me. There is a me trapped inside the limitations of my body. So I really like this, that Jesus' godliness was manifested in the flesh, and there's a kind of obscuring that happened but one day our souls will be set free. And you know, when uh, when godliness, God in me, is wrapped up, limited by the flesh, there's a kind of paradox that emerges. You know, like I said, you look at me and you don't think I should be a pastor, and yet here I am. You don't think I should bear fruit, and yet there it is. What do you do with that math? That doesn't work you know, begin to feel a paradox. And so I think all of us, we're kind of longing for a vindication. And that's, um, that's the second part of verse 16. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This little phrase, seen by angels, it means that there's a kind of uh, finally, finally, we get to see Jesus and God's mission through him. You know, the Bible talks about angels longing to see the unfolding of God's plan through Christ. The Bible talks about creation itself longing and groaning for the redemption of God's children. And so this phrase is uh, alluding to that, that when Jesus was living his life and he died and he was resurrected, angels finally said, ah, There it is, the beauty of godliness, now vindicated, hidden in a moment, for a moment by his flesh, now vindicated, and then believed on in the world because it's true and it's right, this idea that all will know and every knee will bow. And so for somebody who is godly in a truly biblical way, it's not something that's obviously praised by everyone on earth at this time. You know, what this passage is saying is if somebody is godly, there's a high chance we're going to miss it because that's what happened to Christ. Part of being godly the way God intended it is to be misunderstood by the flesh, by the way we tend to think. I want to throw in one application point here. Uh, This week especially I've been thinking about, uh, these verses. It was timely because we are in that season again, as our annual year is coming to a close. Uh, at the end of June, we have turnover in the leadership team, and as different members roll off because they've fulfilled their term, different people are coming on. And so we've been praying through and thinking about compiling lists of traits and names and things for who should be on the leadership team next. Um, and so be in prayer about that, that God would help us to uh, could send the right leaders for our church in this next season. You know, that's part of the work that's happening. Uh, I want to end this sermon with a, uh, a story about a movie called Babette's Feast. Has, how many of you have ever seen this movie or read the book? Or uh, It's a French film. And uh, this movie, Babette's Feast, takes place in a small little town. And the town is run by a pastor and his two daughters. And the pastor and the two daughters represent uh, a human understanding of what godliness ought to look like. And so if I asked you to make a list of what godly looks like, this pastor would qualify. He was always well-controlled with his tongue. His daughters were absolutely under control, you know, and um, he never misstepped. He never took a risk. He was always that guy in his role, never outside of his role. And uh, I would say, and part of, I think, what's between the lines is the way the pastor presents himself and his family as Gali is via discipline, Via suppression, if you want to not be as generous in your word choice. And it's a kind of dull, boring life. And I don't think you would want to imitate this pastor if you want to have fun. You know, you wouldn't look at this guy's life and think words like freedom. You know, or fun. Or healing. Or you know, any, anything kind of, it's, it's more dark and negative. And that's kind of how I understood godliness. And then the whole point of the story just sort of emerges suddenly. There's a woman named Babette who comes and who sees sort of the, the stoicism and the suppression that's kind of blanketed this town through this pastor's uh, leadership. And so she decides to spend everything that she has, and she's a fabulous cook from Paris, and she makes this extravagant meal. And she invites the whole town to, to come and feast at her table. Just amazing gourmet French cooking. The very best that food, the food world has to offer. And the people are at first timid, you know, but they slowly get pulled in by the, uh, the, um, the beauty and the the goodness, the gift of this meal, and they start indulging in uh, paired wines and dishes, and pretty soon they've lost any sense of propriety, and they're just, uh, just drowning in generosity. And the point of the story is that's the difference between human godliness and God's grace, which is at the heart of what it means to be godly. At the center of godliness is this experience and a sense of being lost. You you yourself being lost in the lavish, generous grace of God. And when you are captured by God's love for you, these traits that Paul lists out begin to bear fruit in your life. It emerges, but it's never the ultimate goal, and it's not what you directly aim for but it's what happens as a result of the kindness in your life which leads to repentance. And so as we think about godliness, uh, the takeaway here is my prayer for you as a pastor, and I am a pastor, (laughs) is that your life would be filled with God's grace and love for you that if you are godly at all, if there's fruit in your life at all, it will be the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the love of Christ that you're wrestling with that comes to grip you. And as you live into that love, there's a kind of godliness overflowing in your character and the way people experience you and perceive you. And when they see you, they would not credit you, but they would credit the Christ in you and say, you know what? If, if you are godly, surely I too can be godly. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we need um, God in us to be able to accurately understand a list like this for overseers and deacons. It's too easy to take it and just mess it up with our human nature, our unredeemed minds. So God, before any of these traits uh, become desirable to us, I pray that you would be in us, that we would decrease and you would increase. And any godliness that we demonstrate in our life would be a result of uh, you being in us and you being alive in us and not just our effort or striving or fighting for it. There's enough of that in the world. So I pray that for us, for Christ in us, the hope of glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Church, receive the benediction from Ephesians. May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Church, go in peace. Have a great week. Take care.